John chapter 11, we'll be reading verses 47 through 57. Forty-seven through fifty-seven, and considering the final episode of John chapter eleven, the plot. The final episode, the plot. Give attention to God's holy word. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council, and said, "What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him." The Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. The Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? Will he not, uh, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your son. We pray now that you would feed us upon this word and help us to see how even the plans of the wicked glorify you in your great grace to save sinners. And we ask all of this for Jesus' sake, amen. Well, as we've been looking through the 11th chapter of John, we've noted that there are five episodes in this chapter, Uh, and in each one of these episodes, The general theme of the chapter is fulfilled, and the general theme, just to remind us, is found in verse 4. When Jesus heard that his friend Lazarus was sick, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so each one of these episodes has shown how the Son of God is glorified through the sickness of Lazarus, And we've noted that Jesus is the one who can read providence. He's the one who can comfort Martha. He's the one who comforts Mary. And he's the one that powerfully ministers the gospel in bringing Lazarus up from the dead. Now we come to the fifth episode where the Pharisees are scheming for his death. And you may be asking yourself, Pastor, how is Christ glorified in this? Well, what we're going to see in this passage is that Christ is glorified through the scheming of the wicked as the object of their hatred. Christ is glorified as the object of the hatred of the wicked. 
And we're going to see a few things in this passage. First, in verse 47 through 51, I'm sorry, uh, 47 through 50, the plans of the wicked. Verse 51 through uh, 54, the glory of Christ. And verse 55 through 57, the schemes of the wicked. Verses 47 through 50, the plans of the wicked. Verses 51 through 54, the glory of Christ. And verse 55 through 57. Now, one of the most important things we have to remember about the Scriptures and about our lives is that God is absolutely sovereign over everything that comes to pass, including the plans of the wicked. And as he is sovereign over the plans of the wicked, he is able to use their wickedness to bring glory to himself. Now remember some of the context here in Matthew chapter, uh, uh, sorry, John chapter 11. Christ has performed a great miracle, perhaps up to this point, the greatest miracle of his earthly ministry. He, with a mere word, has called a man back to life. Lazarus, come forth. This is the mightiest miracle Christ has performed. And the result of this miracle, as we saw last time we were together, in verse 45, many of the Jews had seen the things Jesus did and believed in him. So not only has Christ brought a man back from the dead, but through that miracle, sinners have been brought out of spiritual death. Both of these things, the resurrection of Lazarus and the increasing number of disciples, are all signs, they are all evidence and proof that Jesus is the Son of God, that He truly is the Messiah, God and man in one person. Now it's important to keep this context in mind, because as we move into the plans of the wicked, notice that they confess this, first off. Look at what they say. Verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many uh, signs or many miracles. The word signs here is a little bit more than simply miracles as we tend to think about it. We would think that if, if I had lost an arm and grew one back, that would be a miraculous thing. It would be miraculous. But more often, the the things that Christ does in the Gospels are properly called signs. Signs has a specific uh, significance in the Scriptures. Signs are there to prove the doctrine. They are supports of the truth of the doctrine. Now, notice who is saying this. The chief priests and the Pharisees. This man performs many signs. Just like what Nicodemus said in John chapter 3. Remember Nicodemus? Comes to Jesus by night. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. The priests and the Pharisees are confessing the same thing in John chapter 11. So notice, first off, they see in Christ... 
a clear demonstration of the power of God. And they recognize it. And they hate it. That's why later on they're going to move to trying to kill Christ. The, the plans of these wicked men, what, what they want to do is oppose the power of God. These are not men who have the fear of God in their hearts. They fear themselves or they fear man, but they do not fear God. And in not fearing God, not having a transformed heart, it doesn't matter what signs Jesus performs. He can perform bringing one back from the dead like he just did. And they will reject it and hate it. So they say, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. Notice also in verse 48, they acknowledge that Christ is, a, uh, that Christ is performing the work of God. Their, their motivation is their hatred for God and therefore they, they hate Christ, but they cover their hatred with hypocrisy. Verse 48, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice that the way that they're reasoning, one, they're arguing in a hypocritical fashion. They are saying, in effect, if this man continues doing what he's doing, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come, and it will create an upheaval for our people. The Romans will come here, take away our place and our nation. If you know anything about ancient history... If you were a part of the Roman Empire, all the Romans would ask is that you pay your taxes and play nice with your neighbors. But if there was a revolution, if the taxes weren't getting paid, the Romans would come and uh, destroy your city and pull it apart brick from brick, as they end up doing in AD 70. The Romans were notorious. Either you submit to us or we will kill all of you. That was the only options the Romans gave you. So at one level, you could think, well, maybe they have something to, to say here. Maybe they have a good reason for this. They don't want the Romans coming. They don't want a revolution to happen. They don't want an upheaval to happen. But remember, the motivation of these men is not the protection of their people, but it's the maintenance of their own position. They're trying to protect their own power. Look at what he says. They will take away our place and our nation. You have to remember at this time that the Jewish hierarchy, the chief priests, even King Herod, and the prominent Pharisees were there because the Romans put them there. Part of the deal was that if Rome is going to protect you, Rome gets to choose the king and Rome gets to appoint the priests. And so all of these officers of the Jewish people, they're not there because the Jews put them there. They're not even there because it's according to the law. They are here because the Romans put them here. And so if they break with Rome, they will lose their authority. Secondly, notice the pragmatism of these men. They've already confessed in verse 47, this man has performed many wonderful signs. We know that he's a teacher come from God. 
We know that he is the Messiah because he fulfills all the, all the uh, requirements of the word of God. And yet, they're not concerned about obeying God. They're concerned about protecting themselves. They're concerned about the consequences. This is often how the wicked will reason. You see, those who are opposed to Christ are more concerned about the result of an action rather than is this action in accordance with God's Word. They are pragmatic. They don't think according to the fear of God. They think according to the comforts of man. But there's more here in the plans of the wicked. Verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Think about the man that's saying this. This man occupies the highest seat of organized religion in the ancient world. His position is even higher than Roman priests. Because he's a priest of the one true religion. He's a priest of uh, holding the office that the Lord instituted at Mount Sinai. This man is in a holy office. And because of his hatred for God and his desire for power, he's willing to counsel murder. He's not outright saying it, but he's, he's... Uh, He's not saying it, but he is saying it, as they say down south. He's saying that it's better that one man should die for the whole nation than that all of us should perish. Essentially, wink, wink, we need to get rid of this guy. We need to bump him off, because he's a threat to our project. And so you see here the plans of the wicked. Notice... This is exactly what Christ told us at the end of the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, Christ says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice what Christ is saying here about persecution. If you are persecuted by the wicked, that is something to rejoice in. Because you see, the wicked hate God. And if the wicked hate God in general, they're going to hate the godly in particular. And if the wicked hate you, that means you're living a godly life. If, if the wicked are are coming after you and persecuting you, that means you're displaying the glory of God in front of them, and that's what drives the wicked man. That's what persecution is. That's what Christ is experiencing. And this is one of the ways that Christ is glorified through this sickness. Because in bringing Lazarus from the dead, he displayed the power of God that rested upon him. The Pharisees recognized it and said, we've got to kill this guy. We have to get rid of this guy because he is a display of the glory of God. And he is a display of the one that we hate. This also explains, by the way, you ever ask yourself if you watch TV or or some of the movies that go on today, 
You ever stop and sort of ask yourself, like, why do they use the kind of language they use in some of those movies? I, I won't repeat any of it. Those that know, know what I'm talking about. But some of the words they use to express anger, you just sit there and think, why? That it doesn't make any kind of rational sense. It's not rational. It's the hatred of the wicked for the clearest display of the glory of God. They hate him because he is not of the world. All the other religious leaders are worldly. They come from the world. Jesus Christ alone is the display of the glory of God, and therefore the wicked hate it. Well, the wicked make their plans, but Christ is able to uh, still be glorified in these plans, and God is able to overrule these plans. And it begins with Caiaphas's prophecy. Look at what John says in verse 51. God, who is sovereign over all things, can even take this plot and turn it to his glory. Verse 51, John tells us that this uh, Caiaphas, he did not say this on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one all the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now this is an interesting statement from John, and it can sometimes be uh, perhaps a little bit confusing. What John is telling us is that because he was the high priest and because of the office that he occupied... God, through the influence of his spirit, caused him to utter a prophetic word. He caused him to utter a prophecy in the midst of this council. Now, Caiaphas didn't know what he was doing. Caiaphas is not trying to glorify Jehovah or his son. Caiaphas wants to murder him and protect his own office. But even in his wicked desire, holding the office of the, the uh, Old Testament priesthood, God is able to cause him to prophesy to his own glory. God is able to overrule the wickedness of man for his own purposes. This should not be surprising to us because God did the very same thing with Balaam, the son of Baor. Balaam was a false prophet who was hired to curse Israel, and God overruled him and turned his curse into a blessing. Likewise here, we see the same power of God turning the one who would curse and what he says into a blessing for the people of God. So God has respect to the office. It's not necessarily the man that God is causing to prophesy, but it's the office that this man occupies. Notice that John says that, being high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Notice what John also says, He's going to die not only for the nation, but he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. It is through the death of Christ that God gathers his people together. It's through the power of the cross that God's people are brought into his presence. Paul the Apostle says this explicitly in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13, Now in Christ Jesus you once who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Interesting way of putting it, isn't it? You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. The point here is simply to notice what John mentions, that it is through the death of Christ that the people of God are gathered back to God. And the reason that the death of Christ is what gathers God's people back together is because the death of Christ brings reconciliation. The death of Christ is what deals with sin. But here you have a problem. This is where the wisdom of God in overruling the wickedness of these men really shines. Christ has to die for sinners. He has to be willing to die for sinners. But, if he takes any action, if he does anything that endangers his life, he would be sinning against God. Because the sixth commandment teaches us Not only are we not to murder, but we're also not to endanger our own lives through overeating or not eating enough, through testing the Lord, through putting ourselves in dangerous situations, through being foolish. We are not supposed to test the Lord when it comes to our lives. So what is Christ supposed to do? He's appointed to die for sinners, but he himself cannot take any step towards his own life. Uh, uh, putting his own life in danger. He cannot willingly endanger himself. Now the plot of the wicked comes in. The Lord Almighty uses the hands of wicked men to plot the murder of Christ so that Christ remains perfectly innocent, yet willingly a victim of their schemes for the sake of our salvation. That's what John says in verse 53. Then from that day they plotted to put him to death. Peter will say this later on in Acts chapter 2. He says that you, by wicked hands, accomplished what God foreordained you should do. So you see, the crime of the murder of Jesus Christ is fully in the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees, of the chief priests and the nation of the Jews. That is their crime. But God, in his sovereign wisdom and providence, orchestrated all of this so that what they intended as a blessing, he turns into, uh, what they intended as a curse, sorry, he turns to a blessing for the world through his supreme and overruling providence. Now, because they're plotting to put him to death, Jesus is not going to endanger his life. He's not going to put himself in harm's way foolishly. Verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Now there may be a question about this. 
Is Jesus uh, leaving Judea because he fears? No, I don't think so. I think what's indicated in the next passage, verse 55, Christ knows that the time is not right. This is not his time to be crucified. And so he's withdrawing himself, realizing that up to this point, he's done everything that he can. There's no reason to be there endangering his own life and seeking to put himself in harm's way. Verse 55, John continues to write, The Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? Will he not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Notice now the schemes of the wicked come to light. This, uh, this season in the life of Jerusalem was a purifying season. It was not the feast of the Passover. Notice they're being purified in preparation for the Passover, uh, before the Passover, to purify themselves. This is not the actual Passover feast. So they're, they're gathering together, getting ready for the Passover, and the people are talking among themselves, wondering if Jesus will come, seeking after Christ, but because of the plot of the wicked and what the governors of the church have instituted, notice verse 57, they had given a command. If anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. The people are speaking quietly about Christ. They're speaking among themselves about Christ. No matter how hard the wicked scheme, no matter how hard they try, they cannot snuff out the light of the gospel. They, they cannot prevent Christ from accomplishing his work. Eventually, the truth will out. You know, I mentioned in the morning sermon that I've been reading about the history of the OPC lately. And what strikes me as we've been going through the Gospel of John and, and as you read church history, you find this same pattern repeating itself throughout church history. Obviously not to the same magnitude. Obviously not with the same uh, historical importance. But what you often find in the history of the church is that there may be one or two courageous men in the church, like Dr. Machen, who are contending for the truth and, and are trying to promote the truth of the gospel, and the chief priests, the, the Pharisees of the church, direct their attacks against him. They, they want to silence him, and the reason they wanted to silence Dr. Machen is that he was causing a disturbance. The, the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. This man is stirring things up. We want things to be easy and peaceful. The tithe money is coming in. The houses are getting bigger. There's no reason to cause a ruckus over the truth of the gospel. But then eventually, Dr. Machen is excommunicated from the PCUSA. And eventually, there's a small number that has to leave the PCUSA. But we saw the result. In Machen's day, the wicked were scheming to snuff out the light of the gospel. Interestingly, the thing that liberals deny are the miracles of Christ. And that's the very thing that persuaded the Pharisees, this guy is the real deal. And so they want to deny the miracles of Christ. Where is the PCUSA now? Dead, 
rotting and dying the slow death of many churches that have tried to silence the gospel. And so here we are now in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. This danger is an ever-present danger in every denomination that you will be a part of. As we like to say in the OPC, there is no perfect church. We are not the only perfect church. And we chuckle about this a little bit. It is true, but I just want to remind you it is very true. Because you see, what happens in the life of churches? The same thing that happens in the life of these Pharisees. Their families have been in office for a generation or two. Things are good. The temple of Herod is covered in gold. The people come from all over the Roman Empire, filling the coffers and offering the sacrifices. Things are good. The Romans have secured peace for our borders. Life is good right now. And men become comfortable where they are. They become comfortable with the way things are going. And they resist when God shows up to bring a reformation, just as Christ did in this episode. Well, what we've seen is that Christ is glorified through the plots of the wicked because he is the object of their hatred. The wicked hate God and they hate Christ in particular. As he'll say later on in the Gospel of John, do not marvel if the world hates you. They hated me before they hated you, and they hate me because I am not of them, but I speak the truth and expose them for who they are. And so Christ, as the Son of God, is the object of the hatred of the wicked, and this is a glory for him. Now, one just final concluding application for us to ponder and think about today. For too long, I think, the church has forgotten this lesson. For too long, I think, in America, the church has forgotten that friendship with the world is enmity with God. But that the hatred of the world usually means you're in friendship with God. What do I mean by this? For too often, churches have tried to make everybody happy. For too often, we've tried to couch the gospel in such a way that nobody will ever be offended by their sins being exposed. We're slowly moving out of that age. We're slowly moving into an age where the world is more and more hateful towards the church and more and more attacking the church. What you need to be mindful of and what you need to be praying for in light of this is don't fear if the wicked hate you. Don't be disturbed if the wicked turn their judgments against you. If the wicked start gunning for you as they started gunning for Christ. This is a glory to you. As Peter says in his first letter, if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, the spirit of grace and of glory rests upon you. Don't be afraid when persecution comes because they persecuted your Lord before they persecuted you and it was a glory to him as it will also be a glory to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the Lord Jesus Christ.
thank you that he fulfills your word and brings us all the blessings of your covenant. We pray now, Lord, that you would bless us as we close our worship this afternoon. Bless us as we go to fellowship with our friends and families. And bless us in the week ahead with the grace that you have given to us, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.